hello everybody and welcome to episode 12 of the Football Funders podcast. My, I'm your host this evening with you, Dan. Uh, no Pete today, he's very busy, so it's just me and Ryan. Hi Ryan. Hello, how are we doing? Yeah, I'm not bad, how are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Right, so as we said, episode 12, we're going to discuss Newcastle uh, and their latest takeover, Watford, and we're going to get on to some of our current best Premier League uh, players. But before we do, let's just jump in to have a quick conversation about our partnership with the Proper Bloats Club. Um, they are a lovely group of people that go walking for men's mental health. You can talk to whoever you need to there, go for a nice walk, have a lovely evening. They're scattered all around London, and I've started to see in Bristol and a few other places. If you want to check them out, they're on Facebook, The Proper Bloats Club, or head to www.thepropablokesclub.co.uk. And they're on Twitter as proper underscore blokes underscore club. Um, please find them and follow them and hopefully join in with some of their challenges and their walks. You will love it. Um, so, Ryan, I think we'll jump straight into Newcastle. Um, their takeover has finally been completed. Um, the first question I'll ask you about it is, uh, do you think the drama around it previously was worth it, I guess? Uh, it's going to be because looking at the uh, investment fund that they've got back in them, which actually also backs uh, McLaren F1 team as well. Little side note there for you. Um, they've got a potential holding of three hundred and twenty billion pounds. They are th- this is th- this group of people have more money than Manchester City, uh, more money than PSG, from what I've been uh, reading today. So this. Despite the issues surrounding the deal, I will give a quick rundown for anyone who's not aware. There was issues with piracy for Premier League rights, as well as some human rights uh, issues with being sports and also with arms trades uh, around the world, um, which have now been resolved. Well, the being sports one has been resolved. Obviously, the, the arms trades and the human rights breaches are moral issues and not business issues. Yeah, so the, it was. This has been a protracted takeover of since I think January last year, before yeah, the pandemic. probably before hit. that. To be honest, I think that's when it was. The, I think there was rumours of it before that, but that's when it kind of hit the mainstream press, wasn't it? Yes, and I think this could be massively beneficial not only for Newcastle Football Club, but for the city of Newcastle itself, because from what I'm understanding, uh, the consortium that have now taken over. Newcastle because it has been confirmed that they passed the fit and proper person's test today. Uh Um, My understanding is that they are looking to invest not only in uh, the football club, but the city as well, much in a similar way that the people who own uh, Manchester City have invested in Manchester. Uh, you've You've just made a fantastic point about the club uh, it's it's more than just the football on the pitch. It's the the outside, the world, the fans uh, trying to bring around the area like Man City have. Um, it's so important for a city like Newcastle, where which is, I've spoke to people from Newcastle who tell me that they are that working class city that that you you think of Newcastle. It is like everyone pulls together. They're tight knit. Hopefully they can bring the club together again. I know their fans have been very separated, shall we say, during Ashley's era. Um, and hopefully good times are, are coming for Newcastle. They're a football club that I've always admired. Their fans are always there. When they're in the Championship, they were selling out a massive stadium. Uh, I saw that their financial fair play means they'll be allowed to spend around about £250 million next window if they want to. 
So I'm very interested to see, one, how they go about their business. And most importantly, and it's a question I will ask you, who's going to be in charge of the club? Because I would hazard a guess it won't be Steve Bruce for much longer. Well, let's start off first. I'll get to the management situation in a second. Um, first thing I will say is when it comes to them investing large sums of money, the Newcastle fans and football people in general are going to have to be patient because they can't just chuck £250 million into the transfer window in January and expect results. This is going to be a big build from the ground up. Very similar, like I said earlier, to what Manchester City did. They're going to restructure the club uh, from top to bottom. Youth, academy, everything's going to be done. So I think it's going to take about four, maybe five years before we see any kind of progression up the league. Obviously, they're going to invest in the playing squad because let's be honest, they have to invest in that playing squad. as the championship as squad, isn't it? it I, I mean... It's mid-table championship squad. There are better squad. There are better teams in the championship in terms of players than Newcastle have. Uh, I don't mean mm. that to be disrespectful to the Newcastle players. I'm sure they're all fantastic pros and work hard and do their jobs, but there's levels of quality in football when their, their, well, their into, quality in, isn't there. In terms of their starting eleven, you could argue there's two players, outfield players, in St Maximan and Callum Wilson that are at that level that they're at a Premier League team. I wouldn't argue there's many more. I like Jamal Lascelles, but they're like their midfield of like uh, Isaac Hayden and, and John Joe Shelby. It's not cutting the mustard for me, and I love John Joe Shelby. You know, but it's not cutting the not mustard in the league at all, is it? Let's be honest. Uh, I think I'll have to disagree with you. I think they've only got one Premier League player, and I think that is St Maximan. Callum Wilson, I don't think, stays fit long enough to be considered a Premier League quality player because he doesn't produce it over long enough. But yeah, so this is going to be a slow build. Um, there's going to be a lot of time. There will be investment straight away. You'll, you'll see it. The wage budget will go up. The transfer budget will go up. Uh, the squad will develop in stages, much in the similar way that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done with Manchester United, is developed stage by stage by stage. A couple of players here, a couple of players there. Uh, I would expect them to be quite busy in this transfer window and in the next transfer window. I'd, I'd be looking at a minimum of four players coming in in January and maybe another four in the summer transfer window. In terms of who's going to be in charge, this is going to be the big one because right now they don't have the pulling power to get some of the big free agent names around. I've, I've been listening to people talk about this all day and they're bringing up names like Antonio Conte. They're, they're not going to get... I, I will fall off my chair if they get Antonio Conte. He's, I'm, I'm sure... He, will, he might be tempted by the job because one of the reasons he left Inter Milan was because they said, we don't have any money left and we've actually got to sell some of our players. And he was like, right, well, if you're not giving me money, I'm not staying here. It was a similar situation when he was at Chelsea. But I can't see them getting uh, someone like Conte or a big name like that under any level for at least two years. I don't think Bruce is going to remain. I think this actually works out very well for Steve Bruce. Because Steve Bruce has said throughout all this that he's a Geordie, he doesn't want to quit, he won't leave the club. So if the new owners come in and force him out, then he's got a get-out clause. Gotten out, yeah. I'm sure he will be handsomely rewarded for it as well. I'm sure they'll pay up the, the rest of his contract without an issue, without delay. The question is, is who comes in next? I'm sure they're probably going to want a younger manager 
my money would be on someone like Frank Lampard, who did a relatively decent job at Chelsea, especially in the first year. Second year didn't quite go to plan, but he still did a pretty good job. So someone like Frank Lampard could come in. I've seen Eddie Howe mentioned, but I think that's punching a bit too low for what they're planning. I think they are going to want a young, exciting coach. But I, I think, mm, Dan, any any uh, suggestions on who can come in? So I was just looking at Man City's kind of line of managerial appointments. The first one you hire, as you said, it's important not to go big if you know what I mean, because yep. you're not going to. Man City's first appointment, though, on paper didn't work. I didn't mind it in Mark Hughes at the time. Obviously, not now. I mean, looking back, it wasn't great. But getting a, a Premier League, as you said, with kind of like who, who knows the league, knows the, bare, the, you know, the minimum that you do to be a Premier League manager, and then maybe the next one, so like with Man City, obviously they had Hughes, it didn't work. They went for Mancini as the next one. That was a step up. If they can bring in a manager, the bookies' odds right now is Eddie Howe, Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard. Like, would they possibly try and get Rafa Benitez back? Would he be tempted with a bit of money? Who knows? And then maybe try and make that step up when you're settled and the income has made a difference. If, as you said, if they bring in, if they try to get, you know, someone a, a Conte, as you said right now, if there's nothing that will interest Conte. He doesn't want to manage John Joe Shelby and Isaac Hayden. But in three years' time, if they put some money in and they've got maybe one or two intriguing players, why not would someone like that maybe? Maybe not at that level, maybe that level down. But I think you have to start with... And it, I don't think Eddie Howe's the worst shout, just because I can't really, off the top of my head, think of anyone that's available right now that could jump in. I'm not a big Frank Lampard fan of his managerial career so far because he did exactly what Derby do every year and had one good year with Chelsea and then kind of flunked it. I wouldn't put it past Gerrard, but I, th I think Eddie Howe probably is one of the best options out there right now, unless there's someone obvious I'm missing. I can't see Steven Gerrard wanting to leave Rangers. They're, they're title winners. They're in Europe. They're... They're out of Europe. <laughs> oh, they're out of Europe already. Oh, they're well. already out, yeah. But but they're, they're at the top of, of, of the Scottish League. They, they've finally toppled Celtic. So... I'm not sure Steven Gerrard's going to want to leave for Newcastle. I think if it had been like the Liverpool job, it might have been a different story. But I'm I not think, sure he'll leave. And this is probably a bit of a negative way of looking at things. But um, I also wonder with, with the Steven Gerrard thing, he he's going to be the next Liverpool manager. I'm convinced of it. Steven Gerrard, will be next, why would he go to Newcastle and risk making a mistake or going wrong and then losing his shot? If he goes to Newcastle, it doesn't quite work out. Because the chances are the first manager that replaces Steve Bruce isn't going to be successful. It'll be a bit of an improvement on what you've got right now. But I, I think it's probably too risky for him to make that move right now. So I think Eddie Howe might actually be the best available right now if they were to move on from Bruce. For, for me personally, I think it is between Eddie Howe and Frank Lampard. I think those are the two obvious ones for me. They're both youngish coaches, both highly regarded for the style of football they play within the game. I can't see Rafa Benitez leaving Everton to to go back to Newcastle. I, I can understand why some people might make that link, but I think he's heavily invested in his job at Everton. It started very well. There's talk of more financial investment coming into Everton very shortly. I, th I think the there's also a bigger question here is, is this the end for Steve Bruce? Because me and you have spoken in the past about managers of a certain ilk. 
think you used the word dinosaurs, if I remember rightly. Yes. And he's very much in the Mark Hughes, Sam Allardyce camp of manager of he'll do an all right job for you. He might keep you up. I mean, he has kept Newcastle up considering how little investment they've had and how badly they've invested in the squad. But I think this could quite possibly be his last job. And it will be sad for him to not leave on his own terms. Because, I mean, I can't remember the last job Mark Hughes had. Was it Stoke? No, he's had one since. I'm sure he's had one since. And Sam Allardyce, obviously, took Sam at West Brom. West Brom down and nobody wants to touch him since. I, could, I think this could be the end for Steve Bruce. I don't, I don't think it's the end for Steve Bruce. I think there will be a championship side who are underperforming that will, would take that gamble. I'm thinking of... Not right now because they've got a manager, but someone of the ilk of a Nottingham Forest or a Derby. They're that relative side of club, not obviously in their current situation, but a club that maybe should be, if all going well, in championship playoff conversations that are not. Cardiff, again, like Mick McCarthy looks like he's about to get the chop, talking to managers that are probably past it. I wouldn't be surprised if they went and got Steve Bruce. They've had Neil Warnock, they've had Mick McCarthy, so... It, it, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if the next one on their list would be Steve Bruce. I think, okay, it may not be the end of Steve Bruce as a football manager, but I think it's definitely the end of Steve Bruce as a Premier League football manager. Oh, yeah, yeah. And unless he gets a team promoted via the route I said, no. I mean, when Newcastle hired him, it was shocking, wasn't it? Like, because everyone said he was done. He left, was it Villa? And everyone said, you're, you're done now because Dean Smith has just come into Villa basically with your squad and kicked everyone's ass. So, you know, and then he got the Newcastle job, which was completely out of, you know, left field. I think there's a job for him. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a championship club and is given money and, and gets maybe not up, but to be up the top. But I think his Premier League days are numbered. He definitely not. He definitely won't get a Premier League job anymore. And speaking of managers moving on from the Premier League, shall we move on to our next subject? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Which is Watford have recently sacked their manager, Isco Munez, and they have replaced him with one Claudio Ranieri. This is obviously Watford, the club that likes to sack everybody, because this is their 14th manager they've had since they took over in 2012. Munez got fired after being in the job for 10 months. He got automatic promotion last season. He had Watford at time of leaving in 15th place with 7th seven points from seven games, which one would argue is actually quite respectable. And also, it's so early in the season. You know, I don't... I don't it works for them, clearly, because, well, yeah, it, it seems to work for them, but I, just, I don't understand this one. I mean, he gets you promoted. Does he not deserve longer? Again, like we have this conversation every year because Watford will have another four managers this year anyway. But you've had a rough start, yes, but does surely getting promotion... You deserve the chance. He's not... Watford aren't a team that are going to go up and stay up automatically. You know, it's going to be a rough struggle for them. It has been for a few years. I thought it was harsh to, to sack him personally. I I actually agree with you. I think had this been... Had Watford been in Norwich's situation, then I might have understood it. But this is Watford. This is the Pozzo family. This is what they do. And I, I did have the statement with me, but I can't find it now. But it was something about... they. We're expecting team cohesion to be improving from where it was. I'm not sure how much team cohesion they expect after seven games when they've 
brought in several new players over the summer and expect them to embed in straight away. I found it right. So it says, the board feels recent formally strongly indicate a negative trend at a time when team cohesion should be visibly improving. It's it's another one. I don't get that. (laughs) For me, it's the Gareth Southgate school of excuses. You know what I mean? It's one that they're trying to talk to sound clever, but it doesn't really make sense. Because like I said, it's not like they've been spanked by everyone. I think they've won two games already and they've got seven points. They've beaten Norwich and someone else. I don't know what they're expecting. I mean, people say that this model that they, they use works. But does it really work? Because it's not kept them in the Premier League for very long. They're, they're another yo-yo club that are bouncing up and down and round and round. Well, they've only been relegated once. Yo-yo club's harsh. I mean, if you look at their Is recent it? history, they've been relegated once in the last... I think since they've been there, they were there five years, got relegated once. So that's probably harsh. I just, I don't particularly agree with the way they do things because I think it was kind of said by a few Watford fans that I listened to on the radio and stuff who kind of said, when you're throwing managers around like they were, you're just delaying the inevitable by making the change, pulling yourself out. It's not sustainable. I would argue it has worked short term, long term, probably not ideal. I must admit, it it baffles me because they seem to pick these managers, these foreign managers, foreign coaches from obscurity, absolute obscurity. I've never heard of half of the managers that have been appointed by, by Watford in the past, unless they've been players beforehand. I mean, this Isco Munez, no idea who he is, no idea where he came from, never heard of him. So he, then, he played football in this country, I think, did he not? He's not the old Isco striker from Newcastle, is he? Was he not, well, not at West Ham. What am I making that up? I know he managed in Georgia before Watford, so that's obviously a great step from some team. My concern for them is their most, if you look at their last five hires to this one, was obviously Isco. Then before that, they had Vladimir, I think it was Ilich, Ivic, the one who got them relegated from the Premier League, had refereed it, had refereed, had managed in Israel at Tel Aviv. So that one was a bit obscure. The one before that was Nigel Pearson, and that one made, that boggled my brain when they did it, let alone that. I liked Kike Sanchez Flores. I thought he was actually probably their best option. Uh, at least he had the history. They had, uh, they, they just, as you said, they've just had so many managers. No one seems to be able to settle. Um, I, I don't think they're given a chance to settle or build anything. I, I honestly, genuinely don't know what the Pozzo family are after from Watford. Because, I mean, this this is a board, a business, a family who have several clubs throughout the world. They're quite lauded in Italy for the job they've done with Udinese. Because a lot of, apart from the bigger names in Italian football, a lot of teams go up and down pretty quickly quick but Udinese have been one of the mainstays for about the last 26 27 years Mm. and they've always managed to sign good players and turn over a good profit and keep themselves above board so why this erraticness with 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 Watford is is even more confusing what I do find interesting is they've now changed tactics slightly from a young foreign unknown coach and they've now gone for a highly experienced foreign coach what was your thoughts on them appointing Ranieri? Well, first of all, I'd just like to came say that I claimed it. The evening that the boy Isco got sacked, I put on our chat with you and Pete, watch for Claudio Ranieri. He's 100% going to be the next Watford manager. And, I mean, he, he was. I'm concerned because are they hiring him because of what he did at Leicester, not 
maybe his overall management since then because they had he left Leicester. He had that one good year, obviously amazing year. They won the league. The year after, he was sacked when were they bottom or were they near the bottom? I think they were near the bottom. He went to Nantes in France and uh, they didn't do well. He won 15 of his 42 games in charge. He then took over Fulham and had a 17% win ratio. That's grim. And was at Sampdoria. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Italy? Uh, won 27 of his 70 games in charge there. To be fair, I will stick up pretty figures. No, but I will stick up for him a little bit on the Sampdoria uh, squad because he basically got brought in to do a a firefighter's job to to, to keep them up. And he did essentially what he was brought in to do. My my only concern is, I mean, a lot of people talk about the year that he he won the title with Leicester, but... I don't think he did that much with that Leicester team. For, for me, I don't really regard that as his win. It was Nigel Pearson's team. Nigel Pearson was building a good side there, mm. had them playing good football and Ranieri, I think, basically lucked into a situation. I know that may sound a little bit harsh because Ranieri has done great things when he was a younger manager, but he kind of lucked into a situation there where everything was set for him. And all he had to do was just sort of bring it home, basically, and not upset the apple cart. And like you said, he didn't do well at Fulham. And Fulham's yeah, and quite an erratic nice, club as well. In the nicest way possible, you compare the Fulham squad then to the now Watford squad. Fulham arguably had a lot better players than he had in that squad than he did in the squad he's got now. So that because that Watford, we said it on our season preview, that Watford squad, I don't see goals in that team. You've got two, I think it was, was it Emmanuel Dennis? I think was his got name? Emmanuel Dennis. And Ismaili Saar. And, um, and teams are keeping Ismaili Saar quiet because they know if they keep him quiet, chances are they're going to keep Watford quiet. Emmanuel Dennis has been injured. Musa Suzoko seems like he's been a good signing for them. I don't think, I don't know if Shao Pedro has been scoring this year. I don't remember seeing his name too much. I'm not sure if he's scored any goals and their midfield worries the rubbish. Peter Tebow, who's not good enough to play in the championship. Tom Cleverley, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, don't get me started on Tom Cleverley. And Sizoko is a decent signing for them. But I, there's just, I don't see, I don't look at that team and think, wow, you know, Ranieri's got things to work with. I think he's going to go in there and I, I could see him struggling and, and probably not making it too long. Do you think Ranieri's appointment is going to actually make any difference in the long term as if they'd stuck with Nunes or not? Long term? No. I could see a short term game where maybe the Tinker man, you know, tinkers a little bit. They might get a few wins early doors. I think by the end of the season, Watford are going to be in the bottom three and I don't think he'll be the manager. He's not got the easiest start either. He's got Liverpool at home, Everton away. Arsenal, Man United, and Leicester are five of their first six. Oof. So, like, and no, sorry. So, their actual fixture list is Liverpool. This is genuinely their next fixtures Liverpool at home, Everton away, Southampton at home, Arsenal away, Man United at home, Leicester away, Chelsea away, Man City at home. So, how many so fixtures next, is that? Two, eight. Four, that's eight. Two, four, right. six. That's eight. They can win one. They'll be lucky to win one. So, Southampton. The rest of that, anything you can get, bargain. So this is Watford we're talking about. This is the Pozzo family we're talking about. So what do he we could reckon? Be gone by the end of that. 
do you, do you reckon we'll say what ten games and he'll be gone? He that if he does not beat Southampton, there's I'm not putting it past them that they get rid of him after that, and because that's grim. Who have they got after that? Brentford. Even after that, their next two games after that are away at Brentford and away at Burnley. Burnley, you might get points from. But I think if he's got through that without getting points and then Brentford away, I don't fancy his chances. No, I, I've got a funny feeling he's not going to be there very long. I, this is Watford. This is the Pozzo family. And after that fixture list, three points from about eight games, I don't think they're going to pay any attention to the fixture list and be like, OK, you've got to go. Well, looking um, at, so looking at Watford's last five permanent managers, right? So is this go? Is this Zisco? Isco? How do you pronounce the ex-silent? Yeah, uh, it, just call him Isco. It's fine. He made thirty-six games. Okay, he is yep. the second highest of the last five managers. Who was the highest? It, the highest is Javi Gracia, who made sixty-six. Blimey. Uh, PK Sanchez Flores managed twelve. Nigel Pearson and Vladimir Ilich made 12, and obviously Isco has made 36, and now Ranieri. And the one before Gracia was Marco Silva, who, in my head, I thought had a long time at Watford. Wasn't he? He was I, there for 26 games. And didn't he then go to Everton? Yes. Right, because I made an error on a previous podcast when we were talking about one of the Watford managers. I think it was Slavisa Jakanovic we were talking to who went to Fulham. And I said that he made a mistake by going to Everton. And it turns out I was completely wrong. It was, it was, in fact, Marco Silva. But to be fair, the amount of managers that Watford yeah, have had... is at um, it's, United. It's very hard to keep up. So it's not a surprise that I got one wrong. So I think we're both in agreement that this appointment is pretty pointless and it's not going to make any difference in the long run. Is, is that yeah, fair? I, yeah, I said, I, even before I saw them as relegation candidates, I don't think the squad's strong enough. And if you're ch- chopping and changing managers... And, and that fixture, as you said, I don't think he's going to be there long. Sadly for him. No, I don't. Right. I think we'll leave management there for a little while and we'll move on because the next topic is best players in the Premier League. Me and Dan have sat down and we've drawn up a list. So let's start off with the goalkeepers. We're not going to go position for position because that would, we, we could It'll be, be here for night. hours. So we've narrowed the positions down. So Danny, you want to start off with your shout for who's the, currently the best goalkeeper in the Premier League? So I found, I'll, I'll be honest, I found keeper I think the hardest because I find it very difficult to judge keepers. And also because I don't think there are many great ones in the Premier League. Um, we've had, had our conversations about De Gea, Bernd Leno, Hugo Lloris has passed it. So that kind of left me with Edison, Allison, and Edouard Mendy. Now I like Edouard Mendy, but I actually gave it to Edison because not only is he a good shot stopper, he can play football too. I think you could put him in the midfield and he'd put in a shift. <laughs> and also, he's made some fun. Every keeper's going to have a howler. He's had his shares, but I think Edson's a really cracking keeper. And if you haven't seen Man City's goal from they scored against Liverpool, and it's because Edison plays like a 60 yard ping to the foot of one of their players. I love him. I think he's quality. A bit, it was him or Allison, and I've just nicked Edison. How about you? I can't argue with your choice. However, he's not mine. You're, you're definitely right about him. Same as Alisson and Mendy's definitely proven himself. I think he's got a way to go before he's included. But um, mine is actually Kasper Schmeichel. I talked about him at the Euros. Pete mentioned how 
He's performed so admirably in front of a defence that is completely subpar to what Alisson and Edison have in front of them. His character, we also spoke about the sort of man he is as well. And even just the other day, Leicester haven't had the best start to this season because they've had a lot of injury problems, particularly in defence. And it's been a very makeshift defence for for Leicester at times. And he is still pulling out saves left, right and centre. So I think over in terms of longevity and in terms of performance, Cashper just nicks it for me. We'll move on now to fullback. We, we're not going to do right back and left back because, like I said, we can be here all night. So it, it's down to you, Dan, just to pick one fullback, left or right. It doesn't matter. Who have you gone with? Andrew Robertson. Interesting. Go on, state I your lo- case. I, I love Andy Robertson because he it's something that we, we talk about all the time. I want, my def- I want my wing backs to defend. He can defend. You can put him at a three at the back and he'll still defend. He plays a left wing role. I think he's very clever. He positions himself well. He's not necessarily the quickest. I think he positions himself well. He has kept many high quality inside forwards. I guess they're not really wingers anymore, are they? They're inside forwards. Uh, Reasonably quiet. And going forward, he's a nuisance as well. And also when I compared him around, Wan-Bissaka, again, we've talked about my love for Wan-Bissaka. Wan-Bissaka isn't quite the attacking talent that Robertson has. I don't rate Carl Walker. I don't. I like Cancelo, but he's not at the level of, in my opinion, of Robinson. I like Trent, but Trent's defensive work concerns me. Marcus Alonso, I can't stand. Reese James is okay. And I like Kieran Tierney, but he's not at that level either. So for me, unless I'm missing someone really obvious, it's Luke Andy Robinson. Shaw would be the obvious, obvious one. I did consider Luke Shaw in fairness, but I really, really like Andrew Robinson. I, don't, I think it's just because with Luke Shaw... I've seen it recently for the first time where he's been consistently fit and healthy and not being called fat by his manager, where Robertson has had a a few really good seasons. So I'd still go Robertson, but Luke Shaw is definitely in the conversation. Well, this is interesting because my choice was also Robertson. (laughs) It was extremely, extremely close between him and Luke Shaw. I think, as we've talked about before, Luke Shaw's improvement since the end of Mourinho has, has been mind-boggling and we've talked about Aaron Wan-Bissaka and we both love Aaron Wan-Bissaka and for me <laughs> defensively he's the best fullback in the league bar none I don't care what anyone says Aaron Wan-Bissaka gets a lot of stick for for not being not good being enough able. going forwards or not being good enough with the ball at his feet I actually heard one pundit on Talk Sport say that with the ball at his feet uh, he's a second division player I heard um, someone say the other day which I thought was um, massively harsh Aaron Wambasaka is only getting five assists. That'll do from my wing back, thank you. Yeah, and I he's have, not even I have, a wing back, is he? Let's be I have I have wingers in front of me to do the job that you're telling me that Wambasaka should be doing. Exactly. But <laughs> for me, Andy Robertson is just a tiny bit better defensively than Luke Shaw. Only just, but I think in terms of all round as as, as going back, going forwards attitude, mentality, he just, and I literally mean by a hair's width, gets the nod for me as the best fullback in the Premier League at the moment. Moving on to centre-back, I don't know about you, but I think there is only one answer here. I think there's two very close oh, I think there's contenders. Two. I think really? there's two. Yeah. For me, it's Virgil van Dijk. Oh, he's I one think... of them. He's not the one I picked, but he's one of them. I think he's proved it consistently since his time at Southampton. I think his absence last season for Liverpool just highlighted how good he is. 
and how since he's come back, they're playing so well and there's such a cohesion to the Liverpool side. I don't think Jurgen Klopp helped himself last year when he lost both of his centre-backs that he decided to rip out the heart of his midfield no, and play him at centre-half instead. I, th- I think for me, had, uh, don't get me wrong, Jurgen Klopp's a world-class manager, but I think that was part one of the biggest reasons why they had such a bad season. If I was him, I would have left them in midfield and then used them as a barricade to, to protect inexperienced defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean... It's Virgil van Dijk. He's been arguably the best defender in the world for what, the last two years. Uh, I've got a funny feeling I know where you're going, but go for it and I'll see if I'm surprised. Ruben Diaz. No, I'm not surprised. <laughs> go on, state your case. No, um, listen, I, I think um, I actually think they're the two best centre-backs in the world. You've just said the two best centre Between Diaz and van Dijk, it's the best two centre-backs in the world. I was just so impressed with the way Ruben Diaz changed Man City's defensive play just by playing Ruben Diaz. When he doesn't play, they are shit at the back. For no way about it. He brought up John Stones' game. He could even, well, he not obviously isn't there, but he could have pulled up Nicolas Otamendi's game when Otamendi was there. I, I love Ruben Diaz. Um, very cool on the ball as well. I like him as a footballer. I think Van Dijk probably longevity it gets the nod. But right now, Ruben Diaz is, I think he's very, very good. And as I said, I don't know if you agree, but for me, that's the two best centre-backs in the world. I, def- I would definitely say that they're the two best centre-backs in the world. I also think in Ruben Diaz's defence, I think the influence he's had on John Stones over the last exactly eight yeah. months. He's changed John Stones. Um, I, I think he's taught John Stones quite a few things, especially when I actually think he's younger than John Stones as well. I think he's a couple of years younger than John Stones, but he's definitely... The thing I like him is, is he, he's almost the complete defender. He's hard as nails. He's elegant with the ball. He reads the game well. I think he's only about 23, 24 as well, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's still young. young. So I can understand that. Van Dijk for me, but I can understand why you've gone Diaz. If my big thing for Diaz, and you hit the nail on the head with John Stones, watch John Stones play next to him for City, then watch John Stones for England. And he wasn't terrible for England. No, he hasn't. He's but you see, a, you, you see a difference yes, between when do. he's got Ruben Diaz next to him. And again, I think Harry Maguire gets a lot of shit, which is unnecessary. I like Harry Maguire. But Diaz and Van Dijk, for me, are a country mile ahead of the rest of the world. They're definitely two of the best in the world. I don't think Harry Maguire's far off them, but he's still got a way to go. I I will be interested to actually sit down and watch a City match for 90 minutes and just watch Stones and Diaz together because I'll be interested to see how much talking Diaz does. Because one of the things I've noticed uh, since Varane has arrived at Manchester United, and I think Varane will be in this conversation in a year or two, is the amount of talking he does with his, his centre-half partner. So whether, even if it's Maguire or whether it's Lindelof or whoever, he talks and talks and talks. So it'd be interesting to see how much Diaz is bossing John Stones around and made him the better player that he is. Moving on to central midfield, because like I said, we're, we're not going to do position for position in, in a formation. So my, my, my central midfielder, it depends on what you classify this player as. So I'll put it to you first and see if you think he's in the right position. Is Kevin De Bruyne a midfielder or would you put him as an attacking midfielder? I think he's a midfielder now. Um, Kevin De <laughs> I will, I will say I think he's mass. I know this is going to sound really weird because everyone raves about Pep Guardiola's man management and everything, but I actually think he's wasted 
in central midfield. I think push him further forward. He's played as false nine a few times last season and he was amazing. He was so good. I mean, he started off as a winger, if I remember rightly, at Chelsea. Yeah. Then went to, was it Germany Wolfsburg. he went to? To Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg. And, and then became a 10 or an attack anywhere across the, behind the striker, basically, on either flank. And then, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why. but he Now he's an eight. In, in, in the Manchester City side, he's slowly moved backwards and backwards and backwards. I think um, with De Bruyne, the reason I say De Bruyne, so there was two. I don't, obviously, I don't know who you're going to go. I was going to go De Bruyne or Kante. De, De Bruyne, for me, again, a bit like Diaz, when De Bruyne's not in that Man City team... They don't click. Yep. Something about him doesn't look right. Then as soon as De Bruyne yep. gets on that pitch, whether it's just because of it's De Bruyne or stuff that he does, the other team panics and Man City start to work the gears, work the opposition. You see De Bruyne's... I watched um, a clip with... And I, I can't remember for the life of me who the, the analysis... Uh, whatever the term. Analyst. Analyst, that's the one, was. But he was talking about... Kevin De Bruyne, there's a video and they're just looking at Kevin De Bruyne and he's receiving a ball from the defence and they're watching how many times his head moves as the ball's coming towards him and he's looking around him, looking at his options. So as soon as the ball gets to his feet, he's made up his mind for his next pass and the ball comes to him and he flicks one out to the side. He's not, he's looking towards his keeper where the ball's coming to him, but because he's already checked his shoulder, he knows to flick it wide for, I think it was a Liverpool game, so Foden's gone down the wing. That, that kind of stuff, I don't think you get it. And he's, that's why I think he's so special. You see him scanning the field as the ball's coming to him. Not only is he concentrating on the ball coming to his feet, the defenders around him, he's also scanning for his opposition, sorry, for his teammates, and he finds a pass to set Foden free like that. Yep. And that's, uh, I think De Bruyne is magical. He very it's a much, shame that he wasn't fit at the, at the Euros. He very much reminds me of Paul Scholes in that sense of where his head was just permanently on a swivel and he knew exactly what he was going to do before anyone else could even see what he was about to do. Shock horror, the, the two players that you just mentioned in Kante and De Bruyne were, were the, the two under consideration for me as well. It's not a surprise. Kante is unbelievable as a player. I don't think he gets enough credit for his ability to drive forwards with the ball either because it's, it's mm. not a, a part of his game that he's able to use too much because he's more focused on the unselfish part of the game that he does. But he did it at Leicester and he's done it on occasion for uh, Chelsea. There was a time when, I think it was under Maurizio Sarri, when they were trying to play Sarri ball and they switched... Uh, Jorginho and Kante around. So Jorginho sat in front of the back four and Kante was the one that was allowed to move forwards when he wanted to. Mm. And he scored a couple of goals that season. Just the way he was dribbled with the ball and retained the ball, he was amazing. But I did ultimately come down on the side of Kevin De Bruyne for all of the reasons that you stated. He's amazing. I think one of the things is a lot of people highlight Aguero leaving Manchester City and what a big loss he is. I think. The reason that there's another player that they don't talk as much about, and I think it's because of Kevin De Bruyne, and that's David Silva. Because when De Bruyne wasn't in the side, you had David Silva, who wasn't the same player as De Bruyne, but could perform Magic similar in his tasks. Feet. Magic yeah. in his feet. He could pick that pass that no one could see. He could finish that chance that no one could, could, could finish. The uh, thing that amazed me about David Silva, I don't know if you'll agree with this, David Silva was one of those players that I think will always go, it's underrated, might not be the, what, the term, but not 
underappreciated. I'll compare it to yeah, I'll compare it to Arsenal and Santi Cazorla. Not his talent levels. Yeah, but the work that Santi, the work that Santi Cazorla did in that role for Arsenal and the role that Bernard, uh, David Silva did for Man City in that role, they were two players that didn't get all the the the, the headlines and all the flash, but were two fantastic players for those clubs. Arsenal missed Cazorla when he left. Man City missed David Silva, as you're saying. Yeah, I quite agree. I think the the, the biggest thing for for David Silva was him coming up. He was very unfortunate not to get the recognition that maybe he deserved because especially with Spain, they had a certain Xavi and a certain Iniesta and a certain Busquets. Yeah, and even at, so, um, and even at Valencia when he came through, as a youngster, he wasn't the main man as that because no. he came through the same generation as David Villa. Yes. So it was about the the Spanish goal scoring machine that they'd produced, and he was just oh, and we've also got this lad. So he's always gone under the radar, and you're so Man City really missing when De Bruyne isn't available. They miss a spark, and David Silva used to be that spark. Absolutely. Moving on to attacking midfielder, this is where it starts getting a little bit tougher. Because you've got so many more options. Because when you talk about attacking midfielders and forwards as well, because it's going to be the same situation for when we talk about forwards, you've got players that are swapping and changing position quite drastically. You, one minute you've got uh, Graylish playing as a 10. The next minute you've got Foden. The next minute you've got Sterling's in there. You know, you've got Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United. I'm sure there's people I'm missing as well so go with yours first Dan and then I'll go through with mine you, you just said him Bruno he, he came from sporting like Cristiano <laughs> I, I um, yeah listen I think Bruno's goal tally and people getting a boner over that he, he does take a lot of penalties but the, again as I've said with De Bruyne and as I said with Diaz and even Robertson when there's no Bruno in the United team they're so different. Bruno, when you signed, when United signed Bruno, you saw the change. That first game he played, you went, hello, Man United have got a spark. Because for a while, Man United were that team that they had some good players. They didn't have the one that if things weren't going great, could turn a game in the click of the fingers. Bruno Fernandes will pick the ball up. Who did he score a goal against the other week where he just picked the ball up and thumped it and it went in at Old Trafford? I know what you're talking about because it was, uh, I think Ronaldo scored a couple and it, it just literally looked like he was like, I'm not being outdone by him. So he just turned around and picked no, up yeah. the ball at the edge. I think I it might have been was. Newcastle. Yeah, I thought it was Newcastle. Maybe uh, it was. And literally yeah, he, he just, just like it. received the ball at the edge of the area, took a touch and then just went, no, okay, spank, top corner, done. I, I got, and I do agree that he his goal scoring was overhyped by that first he had a cluster of penalties, didn't he, when he first arrived? Yes. Um, but I think, and this is something that annoys me with football fans, they get too hung up on goals, stats. You can have an attacking midfielder who's fantastic. Bruno could not score goals, and I'd still have him as the best, mid, like one of the best attacking midfielders because of the role he plays, the spark he adds to that team. I, I think he's great. And even, you signed Ronaldo, and I still think Bruno is so important. Even if we're, Ronaldo's in the team and Bruno's not. I still think you missed that spark because of where he is on the pitch. Yeah, and he's that's exactly the same reason for why he's my choice as well. There's so many talents to choose from, especially players who don't necessarily get the credit that they deserve. For example, Son at Tottenham. 
I love Son. I think he's an amazing player. But I mean, I'm, ju- I'm just reading an article here about Bruno Fernandes. And I think he's got, in 73 games, he's scored 36 goals and 22 assists for Manchester United. And out of 23 penalties, he's scored 21. He's been such a profound, he's had such a profound impact on Manchester United maker. and the Premier League. I, I haven't seen a player make this kind of impact since Manchester United signed Eric Cantona. That, that's how big the impact is. I know a lot of people have made that comparison already. I'm not making the comparison in terms of style of player, but in terms of actual impact of taking a team by the scruff of their neck. I, I think the only other one I'd probably argue not wasn't a sign-in, but would probably be Steven Gerrard for Liverpool, was the way he was able to take Liverpool's team by the scruff of the neck, drive it forward, score the goals, get the assists. It, it's very much on that level for me. Um, so my, it's n- no surprise, I'm I'm calling Bruno. Yeah, my, I I didn't even think I I know you mentioned Son, but I didn't think this was close. I genuinely, my first thought in my head was Bruno, and I sat there going, "Who can I replace Bruno with?" No one. I think no the one. thing is, the only player of... that came to my mind that I thought I like you, but you're not yet, was Kai Havertz. I like Havertz. I think he's good. Don't think he's at Bruno's level. Um, Liverpool don't play with that cam. Man City mix, have a different person there every week. Foden, I think, again, might one day, but not yet. Mount, if he stays in the 10, does he play as an eight? Again, mixes up. Pulisic, the same. Arsenal's Erdegaard is a bit deeper. So I, I didn't really think there's anyone to, to mix in. The only one I do want to give a shout out to, actually, we just talked about midfielders. Someone mm. that I think is criminally underrated is Wilfred and Didi at Leicester. You know what? I completely agree with you. I don't know if we'll ever have this conversation in the future, so I'll get out of the way now. When I talk about Man United, we all talk about how bad the midfield is. And for me, I think if Man United could sign two, I think we need two midfielders for the future to make us a better player. And me personally, if I was Manchester United manager and money was no object, I would go out and the two people I would sign would actually be... Let me Leicester's- guess. Let me guess. Go on. Ndidi and Milinkovic-Savic. No. Oh, Close, I would actually go and buy Leicester's midfield pair of Yuri Telemans and Ndidi yeah, and yeah. just pop them with you. in the Man United <laughs> midfield and then just, yeah, we'll win a lot, I think. Right, forward. Now, this is unbelievably hard to call because this includes number nines, wide lefts, wide rights, inside forwards, uh, inverted wingers, whatever you want to call them. There is so many options from Harry Kane, Mo Salah, Lukaku, Pulisic, Foden, Mares, Sterling, Rashford, Ronaldo. The list is endless. So this one was actually really easy for me, but it's I'm interested. And we... I think we're going to do complete opposites. Go on, go for it. Go on. No, you go first. Go on, you go. My one, and I'm going to argue that this player is probably the best player on the planet at the moment. People was probably going to disagree with me on that, but obviously Messi and, and Ronaldo are in a league of their own, but they're coming to the twilight of their career. I think I know who you're going to say. Purely for performances alone, consistency and numbers overall, it's Mohamed Salah at Liverpool. Yeah, I knew you were going to say Mohamed Salah. His overall contribution to Liverpool is amazing. And even when like Sadio Mane is having a bad game or Firmino's having Sadio a bad Mane. game... 
Salah is just still putting them away and still making chances. And I think he just doesn't maybe get the credit he should or isn't considered at the level where he should be because primarily he's not European or South American. I think that's the only reasons he doesn't. But go on, go. So I, we have gone different. Oh, okay. Because I, I went with a natural striker. I went with the actual striking approach. Yeah. I do agree Salah is one of the best in the world. I went with Lukaku. Ooh, okay. Go on then. Uh, Lukaku over uh, Kane. That's interesting. Just I'm Lukaku over Kane every day. And the difference for me is, I don't know if you'll agree, it's something that you've brought up before and, and I agree with. And when I thought about it, this is the difference between them. Lukaku is your big man striker that Harry Kane can be. Harry Kane will go looking for the ball and try and find himself in midfield and not being dangerous and doesn't help the strike forward. Lukaku sits up front, makes two defenders follow him, makes them both look like Dweeb, sends them to Narnia and then scores. Yes. Um, For me, that's the main difference between the two. I love watching Lukaku because when I watch Lukaku, I watch him, not the game, because I watch his movement. He's very smart. Yes, his movement uh, on, off, and on the ball, especially on the ball, has come a long way recently. I don't know if that's Inter Milan really helping him. For some reason, I thought we were doing wingers separately, so I had Mo Salah as my winger, right? Gotcha, and Lukaku as my striker. But yeah, for me, Lukaku's just presence, and the big difference between him and Kane for me, as I said, was that Lukaku that defense commands itself off where Lukaku is on the pitch. If yes. Lukaku's here, the defence is there. With Harry Kane, he wanders. The defence can regroup and deal with... We see it all the time with England. How many times does the ball got up to Mason Mount and Sterling? And as much as Sterling pisses me off half the time, he'll get the ball and he actually hasn't got an outlet because Harry Kane's behind him playing left-back. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't disagree with you at all. I'll give you the prime example. I was watching highlights and I can't remember who Tottenham were playing. But Harry Kane had a shot from just inside the halfway line. But the problem was he was coming from the left back position. So it looked like Harry Kane was the left back taking a pot shot from long range. It almost went in. The goalkeeper had to tip it over. It was a decent effort. I think it was the North London Um, derby. I think I remember watching it. And if if he pulled it off, I'm sure they would have um, marvelled at it and, you know, lost their bits over it. But um, Harry, Kane, the weird thing with Harry Kane, he seems to be morphing into Teddy Sheringham, except for he's coming too deep. I get that. Um, because he's got, the, he's got the physical presence of Sheringham. He's got the touch, the technique. He's coming deep to find the ball. But he's doing what Wayne Rooney did in the latter stages of his career. He's coming too deep. And well, this, so that's the reason why I, I chose Lukaku over him, is that I don't know if it's Harry Kane's not as smart, or has a different fit, like way of seeing it. But mm. Lukaku knows when I'm going to stay here because if I stay here, the defense is going to stay here. Yeah, and I can get the ball and I can pull in Havertz and Timo Werner, who's probably offside already, but at least try. Um, you know, Mason Matt and he, his. I don't want to. His football smarts, I guess, football IQ mm. doesn't only produce him to do well, but then the players around him. I was reading an interview with uh, La Toro Martinez of Inter yep. Milan, who said just playing with Lukaku for those two years improved him as a player because he knew 
he'd learned where to position himself as that second striker by watching where Lukaku was. Because wherever Lukaku was, I need to, he knew, he said, like, I need to buzz around him. I need to be in and around him. Because if there's room for Lukaku and they're watching him, there's space for me. If they follow my run, my run then Romelu's through. And that's the difference. Harry Kane, as you said, wanders. And I've seen it for Spurs where he wanders and Hyungmin Son gets the ball and goes, well, where the fuck am I going with this? Because there's no one with him. Because the bloke that's up front with him is, as you said, at the back talking to Eric Dier. So I don't know why he'd want to do that anyway. Where Lukaku has said Lukaku is just so smart that he wins the ball and he positions himself to say, from this place, I can worry the defence, I can set my teammates up, and I can also, the thing with Romelu, for a big low, he can shift. I think the, the thing is, you're bang on the money. I think being in Italy has helped. He's spoken a lot, Lukaku, about how Antonio Conte helped his game. But I think the other thing is, is our perception of Lukaku is so different now because Mourinho mismanaged him so badly at Manchester United. Because if you watch him when he was out on loan at West Brom and when he was at Everton, he was, like you said, he was on the shoulder of the defender, ready to run in because he had power and he had pace. He's not blindingly quick, but he's still got great pace and he's the, the, very the thing, powerful. That's the thing. Um, when you combine the pace he has with his power, then he becomes borderline unplayable. Yes. And I think the thing is, is the other thing that Manchester United fans didn't get to see was because Mourinho didn't understand him properly and he made him a, a target man, a number nine. Lukaku then bulked up. And when he bulked up, he bulked up to try and handle the attention that he was getting from the defenders. Mm. But the problem was, is because, and I know Pete's blamed Manchester United for this, but I'm sorry, I'm not having that just because of the amount of sports scientists, fitness coaches, doctors, everything that they've got in, in clubs nowadays. Lukaku, when he bulked up, he didn't learn or didn't understand how to train down because when you bulk up to muscle and you don't train it back down, it immediately turns to fat if you don't use it. Mm. So he then put on weight and he became slower and he couldn't run as fast. And then he'd lost complete confidence. So he didn't look after himself properly. So by the time Mourinho left and Oli took over, Oli was left with a player who was a shadow of his former... A damaged player. Yeah. yeah, massively damaged, not only mentally and emotionally, but physically too. So it wasn't... There was, I, I think there was no choice. And like I said before, when we were talking about in the past, when he went to Italy, he changed his diet. He learned more about his fitness or maybe he just paid more attention to what he was being told. And obviously it's a different lifestyle in Italy that he trimmed down... He's turned it back a little bit to muscle, but still slimmed down at the same time. And now he's a complete and absolute beast. I would not want to play even five minutes of football against Lukaku ever. That's what I mean. With his his power and the pace, if you're a defender and you try and say, right, I'm going to match his power, then he'll beat you with his the speed he has with his power. Not that he's overly fast, as you said, but. He's got enough pace that if you're focusing on his power, he will turn you and go. Then if you try and sit off him because you're scared of that little bit of turn of pace, then he will have you for days with his power. And again, when I said, obviously, I broke mine into wingers and forwards. And the only two forwards I really thought about was, I just forgot about Ronaldo for some reason. I think it's because he's so new, but was Kane and... Because even Liverpool, like the wingers... I really like Sadio Mane and obviously Mo Salah's Mo Salah. But Firmino, not in the, not in the discussion. No. United don't have a striker. Ronaldo aside, 
in the discussion. Arsenal Cavani are, did well last year, but yeah, he's not. I, I don't think to... he's at the level. Yeah, no. He, well, let's five honest, years ago. Yeah, maybe. he's thirty-four, so he's not really going to be at that level um, now. Arsenal have Tosh up front. Timo Werner's knob. Uh, Timo Werner's offside. To be more, to be more honest, and no, Man City don't have a striker. So yeah, Lukaku for me. I think that's fair. Right, let's move on to another subject that's been doing the rounds for a while. PSG obviously signed Messi recently. They've spent an absolute fortune this summer. I don't know if you've been following the news, so I'll fill you in. There are problems at PSG left, right and centre. Mbappe was caught on camera saying, in French, that bum doesn't pass me the ball in in reference to (laughs) Neymar. He was complaining that he doesn't get enough passes from Neymar players have been seen out celebrating until the wee hours of the morning following their uh, victory over Manchester City which promptly led to them losing 2-0 in the league to Rennes uh, or Ron or however you pronounce it Mbappe has come out in an interview recently and said he is not renewing his contract he never had any intention of renewing his contract and he did say to PSG in the summer Sell me now because I want you to get some money for me because I'm otherwise I'm walking on a free. And they probably turned down 160 million pounds for him. The only quote Um, I've seen on this, and I think this is my favorite quote, I saw it and actually laughed out loud. They had that conversation where they were like, Renew your contract. He said no. Then they went away, they signed Messi, came back to him and said, Now we've got Messi. Now you'll sign the contract. And he said, Nope, now I'll leave in January. Yep. <laughs> that's like genius. It was amazing. Well done, Killian. <laughs> and all this is going on. And I mean, there's there's players there that are fantastic players. I mean, Neymar's always been hot and cold. I don't know. How do you feel about Neymar? Because for me, people have talked for years about Neymar being up there with Messi and Ronaldo. And for me personally, I don't think he's even remotely close. I don't know if you watched much of Ronaldinho when you were younger. Oh, I watched a lot of Ronaldinho when I was younger. <laughs> he very much reminds me of Ronaldinho. Massive talent, unbelievable entertainer. Complete maverick, but for some reason there's a lack of discipline or a lack of fitness or a lack of... There's something missing to take him to the elite level. What do you think of Neymar? First and foremost, from away from football, from what I've seen and heard, sounds like a knob, which which doesn't help your case immediately. I, I um, I think he's very good, but I don't think he's... Anywhere near the level of Messi and Ronaldo. I don't think he's ever been at the level that Mbappe has already played at. I think the other thing with it's a bit like the Messi situation for some people. He's always been in very good teams. And I wonder if you took him out of a very good team, would he shit the bed? (laughs) Big claim there. Like, I'm not saying he would. I, I would be interested to see if if he stayed at Barcelona and was there now, would he be the difference they're looking for that will stop them getting twatted up by Benfica in the Champions League and be that difference maker? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, this, this is going to sound like a really weird analogy, but I think you might get it. Do you know who he reminds me of? A less mad version of Mario Balotelli. Yes, He I seems like a complete knobhead. Yeah with massive talent, but doesn't appreciate or understand that he needs to work to use that talent to the best of his ability. The thing that gets me, and 
in hindsight, with all the problems at Barcelona, it's probably worked out for him. When he lost Barcelona for PSG, in my head anyway, I went, he's no longer in the debate for the top player. If he was, which I still say he probably wasn't, as I said, he's very talented. I'm not saying he's not talented. He's a very talented player. Top 10, top 15, maybe. Um, but when he left Barcelona and went to PSG, I went, you're not going to go and play in the French League and have me convinced that you're one of the best at the age you're at. Because he went to PSG at 26, 25? About there, yeah. I think it was 24, 25, I think, yeah. You're, you should be playing for... This is your time to get in that Barcelona team and say, I'm here. I'm going to make Barcelona history. I think, I think the other thing for me is that I completely agree with you. I think if you look at some of the other players as well throughout history that have gone on to become considered the world's best, people like Luis Figo, the original Ronaldo, people like that, they went to bigger clubs in bigger leagues. Ronaldo went to uh, Italy and did it in Milan he, 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 after he left Barcelona. He then came back to Real Madrid and did it in Madrid. And Luis Figo was exactly the same. He left Barcelona for Real Madrid because he needed a bigger stage to do it with bigger players. And Neymar, I think for Neymar to have even been in the conversation, he had to go to France and hit about 50, 60 goals a year, every year, to be considered in that bracket. I I often try not to compare to Ronaldo, big Ronaldo, that is, fat Ronaldo, as he was lovingly called. Brazilian Ronaldo, yep. He was the first footballer I remember seeing and going, wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, I kind of, I tried to separate myself from Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, fat Ronaldo, as he was lovingly called, um, because he was the first footballer that made me go, wow. Um, I was born in the mid to late 90s. I started to pay attention to the football. I remember World Cup 2002 as a young kid. That's probably my first memory. Ronaldo was on fire that tournament. I remember, I think that was also the year, I think he left Inter to go to Madrid. So as I started to pay attention to the Champions League and stuff, he was scoring every week for Real Madrid um, in a Brazil shirt. AC Milan was the same. It annoys me. And I don't know if it annoys me because I have such, like Ronaldo, I have such a memory of Ronaldo. When I see comparisons with Neymar and Ronaldo, it gets to me. Because in my head, Ronaldo is so much better than Neymar. He was miles <laughs> better than Neymar. I, I mean, it, it just goes to tell you the difference. I mean, he... I will never forget the night Man United, we played Real Madrid in the Champions League. He tore us apart. He scored a hat-trick. He was unplayable to the actual meaning of the word unplayable. No one could touch him. No one could get near him. Balance, pace, power, guile. He had everything, finishing, passing. He had everything. And when he got substituted, the whole stadium stood up and applauded him. Not, I don't mean like, yeah, some people got up. The whole he was team, the whole stadium got up and applauded him off the pitch. Every About- single United fan in the ground was applauding him. And I've only ever seen that once since. And that was Ryan Giggs. And I think, I can't remember whether it was at Madrid or it was at Barcelona. It was one of the two. But it was towards the end of his career. And he came on and they just applauded him left, right and centre. The, the original Ronaldo was nothing short of phenomenal. Yeah, I went back over lockdown. So what was that? Like, I haven't got a clue. Last year, mm-hmm. lockdown, uh, we, my work schedule 
a change. We were doing like one week on, one week off uh, because of the amount of kids we had in. So I was watching old football just to keep myself entertained in between episodes of Scrubs. And I went back and made a point of watching that era of football to see if I remembered it correctly or if it was football through a, a young man's eyes, yep. effectively. And the two players I went back to really watch was Ronaldinho and Ronaldo. And I came out with two, one the same and one completely opposite. I came out watching Ronaldo as he was the player I remember. He's fucking brilliant. And I came out with Ronaldinho. I came out with good player. I loved him because of his skill, not the player I thought he was. Yeah. Where with Ronaldo, I watched the tape and I watched the videos and went, no, that's the Ronaldo I remember. So that's no different. Yeah. You watched it and, and you were like, no, <laughs> he, he was just up. that good. He's still good. With Ronaldinho, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I can see why I liked you. Yeah. You're going forward, yeah, going forwards, Ronaldinho was amazing, but that was all he did. I watched um, that era of football back, and Ronaldo was fantastic. I wonder if it, Ronaldinho was actually Giggs. out of jail. Ryan Giggs was the other one I went back to like double check on, for still fucking brilliant. Yep. <laughs> there was one more. Who was the other one? There was one more I went back to have a look at. Oh, Roberto Carlos and Cafu. Yes. Because in my head, for some reason... Because, again, because of that 2002 when I started to watch football, those two were great. And I went back and went, nope, still great. <laughs> yes. That Brazil um, side was something scary. But Ronaldinho, genuinely I definitely was. watched and went, nah. <laughs> I loved you're watching not, Ronaldo. You're not the player I thought you were. Yeah, I loved watching Ronaldinho when he was at Barcelona. I thought it was amazing. But after that, his career was just... He, he did well in uh, Milan for a while as well, but he, he fell off the, the, the pitch quite quickly. Ronaldinho's also... biggest problem is that he just didn't, he didn't, football wasn't his love. Do you know what I mean? Where a lot of people I think loved it football. was, but I, I think he loved football because he liked to play football. I don't think he was ever the athlete that other I, people I watched, become. He I kind watched, of reminds, um... sorry, he kind of reminds me of Messi in that sense. The difference between Messi and Ronaldo in that sense. Messi plays the game like he loves the game. And it's easy and it's smooth. And he's just playing on the street with his friends and he can do insane stuff. And that's what Ronaldinho was like. But then you've got the opposite, which was like Cristiano Ronaldo, who is this like hyper-focused, obsessed individual who needs to be the ultimate professional to achieve the best in the world ever. So I think that was Ronaldinho in a nutshell. was just like, I play this because I love to play this. And when I don't love this anymore, then it's not... It's not good. I, I've listened to a podcast, uh, like a podcast, is it a podcast? Might have been like a clip. And he said um, that he fell out of love with football when his dad passed away. Mm. His dad died in a swimming pool um, in, a, in an incident. He had a heart attack with a swimming pool or something. Um, and he said that when that happened, football just didn't matter to him anymore. He didn't care. He's like, football is what I do for a job. It gets me money. He said that as soon as his that changed his perspective. And that was kind of that spell when he was in Milan, I think, just before yeah. he went back to Brazil. And that's, I think, it, I, in another dimension, another world, does he maybe still play for a bit longer rather than have those spells in Brazil where he was just, you know, it was more of a goodbye tour, wasn't it, than yes. Ronaldinho playing football. I wonder if, you know, 
nothing happens to his dad, sadly, something did. Um, does he carry on playing? I think also with Neymar, something else going back to the original topic, which was, of course, Neymar, yes. Brazilian wonder kid hyped up, you're going to be told you're going to be the best in the world. You're yep. always going to be talked about as because Brazil are the favourites for every tournament, even when their squad's knob. Yes. So he's always going to be, because he's Brazil's hype man, you know, he, he's going to be there. I've watched Brazil in World Cups and their the commentator's been banging on about Neymar and I've kind of gone, is he playing? Yes. And I know he scores because they give him 900 chances a day, a game. <laughs> uh, because of the players around him. But I, I often sit, I find myself just sitting there going, yeah, I mean, okay. Like you're there, you're a good player. Right now there's a youngster, he's not young, young, he's about 24, 25, who plays up front with him, uh, Gabriel Barbosa, uh, yep. Gabby Goal. And I watched a pair of them and um, Vinicius Jr. from uh, Real Madrid. Madrid. Mm-hmm. And I think you're free, like Neymar is the best player. But either of these two, either side of him, could arguably be better than him. Yes, I quite agree. And funnily <laughs> enough, you talking about going back and, and watching the old Ronaldo and Roberto Carlos leads me on to the main reason I asked this, I brought up this subject, is given the amount of money and the current problems that they've got, because, I mean, Pochettino seems to have no control over that squad at all. People are coming and going and doing whatever they want. Ronaldo, uh, from what I've heard, there's also been reports that saying that Lionel Messi's walking around like he own, owns the place. And a lot of the players are not happy about it as well. Do you think this is another case of Los Galacticos at Real Madrid when they signed Zidane, Beckham, Ronaldo, Figo, and they couldn't win anything because it was just overstuffed with talent and there was no cohesion? Yeah, I think, um, I, I always think when you have a squad, you need to have a balance. It's all good having, as you said, your Galacticos. Yep. In the sense of, see, when I was watching football, the Galacticos were a thing. It was Beckham, Ronaldo, Raul, Seydorf was there, wasn't he? And yeah, Figo was there. Figo, Beckham, Carlos. Ronaldo was there. I always put it back to the Man United that I watched where you had the stars of Rooney and Van Nistelrooy, but yep. you had your Gary Nevilles in the team. Darren and Fletchers. And, Roy yeah. Keynes, who weren't necessarily the best players in the world, but were so good at their job and keeping the squad. Yeah, I remember watching a video of Barcelona talking like Pep, Pep Barcelona. Yeah, when Carlos Puyol didn't play, that team was they looked lost. They were yes. still great because of individual talent. Yeah, but Carlos Puyol held the team. Gerard Piqué and Puyol as a pair held the team. Uh, Man United had, as I said, Roy Keane, Gary Neville, Darren Fletcher, even people like John O'Shea to a less extent. Maybe not the player. Yeah, and the name, but someone that you'd go right. Let's get John on. He could do half hour anywhere we need him to do it. He'll do it. He'll get the job done. When you have what PSG have, which is, as you quite rightly said, another version of the Galacticos, which is just, we're going to sign every player that's available that everyone thinks is class. Yeah. Even right down to the right back who, when they signed Hakimi for about 60 million quid. I I look at their starting 11 and I'm like, okay, that's 11 fantastic individual players. As a team, does it work? I mean... They're starting 11 for their game against Man City. Donnarama, arguably, one, arguably, if not the best keeper in the world. Yep. Hakimi, Marquinhos, Kipembe and Mendes. So, buying the left-back, who's a young prospect out of Portugal. A very good back line. And even Mendes is very good. Yeah. The midfield three of Herrera, Verratti, Adrissa Guy with 
Wijnaldum and Danilo Perez on the bench. Pereira, is it? Pereira. Then you've got Messi, Mbappe, Neymar, Di Maria, Icardi and Draxler on the bench. Jesus. (laughs) There's talent falling out of your ass. However, there's too many names on that list where I go, you're not a team player. Well, I don't see you as a team player. Sergio Ramos. Add to that as well. Sergio Ramos not in that starting lineup. Keylor Navas as well is the backup keeper. Their squad, as you said, be like the Galacticos, should win anything. Jesus. Yet I have, I genuinely don't think they're going to win the Champions League. And and so, arguably, <laughs> you look at their central midfield of, of those three that you just named, and you would say that's probably their weakest position. Yeah, and, and I love all three of them. And two of their players <laughs> are probably considered nothing more than Premier League workhorses in Herrera and. And I love the pair of them. <laughs> I loved Herrera. I was, you know how gutted I was when yeah, Herrera. Yeah, and I agree. And even the Drissa Gay, I thought he was criminally underrated at Evan. And yeah, it just strikes me that that is destined to go kaboom because when you look at that start, as I just nothing, said, when you yeah. look, when you look at that starting eleven, and you and I say to you, where is the Roy Keane, the Carlos Poyols? There's not one. It reminds me very much of the Galacticos, and I always remember when the Galacticos fell apart. It was when they sold Claude Makélélé to Chelsea. The because he the was king. he was the building block that made that team function and Lots when that list as well. they then went and sold him and it was never the same they had David Beckham playing in central midfield to try and make that work it didn't work they had other players like Guti who's a Real Madrid legend who they were trying to squeeze in there to try and make that work that didn't work and I'm, I think if I remember rightly a couple of years later they signed Thomas Gravison yeah. from Everton to try and plug the hole and it just never worked and it just fell apart. And that's what I'm just seeing uh, at PSG now. I, I can only see it just going bang. Well, that's the thing. If you look at, again, going back to my original point, but slightly different, even if you look at the Chelsea team that won the Champions League against Bayern Munich, you had your Lampards and your Drogbas, but you had the John Obi Mikels and the Gary Cahills. And the Carvalho. The They're not the best players in that team. Yeah, Michael Essien. They're not the best players in that team. Paolo Ferreira. Not the oh, best player in the team. Not legend. flashy, yeah. but you need them in your team. Yeah, You need those people in your team. PSG don't have that. There's a reason they don't win. They haven't won the Champions League. They should, by now, even before they had Messi, they should have won it already. Yes, they should have done They They played Bayern Munich in the final the other year and got their ass blown out because Bayern Munich had exactly what we're talking about when they had the Hummels and the Botangs and, you know, like in the past, they had the Philip Lahms. David Alaban, maybe not people that get hyped up, but team grafters. Yeah, that PSG team. I just look at that and go, that at some point is going to go bang. Yes, right. We're going to wind things down now because this has probably been our longest podcast yet. But before we do go, there's just a couple of other things I want to touch on. For anybody who hasn't heard, there's been a couple of changes to the England squad for the games this weekend. Ben Chilwell's been called in to replace the injured Reese James. Uh, we approving of that one, Dan? I mean. We always argue we need more left backs, and frankly, Reese James is injured, so I'm not going to complain. James Ward Prowse has replaced uh, Calvin Phillips, who's out with a calf strain. I think we both approve of that one as well, don't yeah, we? I, I actually just think Southgate's listened to our podcast and gone, shit, let's make some changes. <laughs> Funnily enough, I did say that in, in the group chat, didn't I? Um, did you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. And um, no, I don't think I did. The, the other one, I'm not sure who he's replaced. No one, it's an a- extra. But it's an extra is the return of Tammy Abrahams, who we were only talking about last week. Uh, and he's finally got a call up after about two years, I think. And I just, um, just to put it out there again, we spoke about on the, la- on the last podcast. 
We're playing Andorra on Saturday night. Start Tammy. Don't yeah. start Harry. Just start Tammy. Give let him go out there, score some goals, have fun. And you never know. Then if we need to go against Hungary, chuck him on when he scored four, when he scored like two or three against Andorra. Because it pisses me off when we're six nil up against Andorra and we're bringing Harry Kane on. Why? We're tanking the team. Are you bringing him on for? And on the note of that Andorra game, that was a perfect segue. Thank you very much. It has been announced that for the very first time, there will be an all-female refereeing team yeah. taking charge of an England game. Don't ask me to pronounce these names because unfortunately three of them are Ukrainians and I don't even want to begin to insult them by trying their names. Oh, I do. And the, the fourth official <laughs> is Stephanie Frappart of France. I, oh, think, I think this is amazing. The sexism in sport, in football, which I think we're going to touch on in a future podcast. I am delighted to see this happen because I see there's no reason why women can't do this job. No reason why they shouldn't do this job. And quite frankly, there's no reason why they shouldn't be involved in the men's game at all. Gareth Southgate has recently come out and said he's not satisfied because there's not enough female members of staff with the England squad. I personally love listening to Alex Scott. Um, and the other one, I don't know if you caught it, Emma, Emma Hayes. Emma Hayes, Fantastic. yes. Fantastic. I love having a female perspective on podcasts, on Match of the Day, on live football shows. And I don't know whether, there's something we'll bring up with Pete, but I don't know whether you're of the same mindset as me. I would love to have a female football fan yeah, yeah. join us I've, on um, the podcast. I, I hopefully, we'll have some um, stuff to update you with lately, but I've been working on, Ryan's aware, been yep. working on something where maybe that will happen sooner rather than later. I'm still in the process, so fingers crossed. So if um, you're listening we'll be able to. and you're in our time zone because we're on Greenwich Mean Time because we're in the UK. Or willing to stay up really late, up to you. Yes, or willing to stay up <laughs> ridiculously late. If you are a female football fan and you would like to join us on the Football Funders podcast, then please write to us at Dan. You can even go to the Twitter, which is at FBall Funders. Our direct messages are open, so it doesn't have to be a tweet or, of course... Uh, Facebook, uh, the Football Funders Podcast, and uh, Gmail, which is uh, footballfunderspod at gmail.com. Um, we would love to have a female perspective on, we would. on our podcast. And so please write to us if you want to join us. Yes. Um, of course, just while we're on the subject of females ref, Howard Webb's wife um, is a referee in Germany. I don't know if you're aware of this. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Uh, Bibiana Stenhouse. I think she might be Stenhouse Webb now. I'm guessing I'm pretty he's, sure they're married. I'm guessing he's punching well above his weight and she's several years younger than him. Uh, I think she's in her 40s. I don't know how really? Okay, that's fantastic. She, then. She I, has I didn't mean that discriminatory, by the way. I, I just, it just strikes me that, you know, an English referee goes out and pulls a, a female referee in Germany. It sounds a bit... Mm. She's been refing in the Bundesliga, I think, for about four seasons. That's fantastic. Why and aren't I've, we at that well, level... I was about to say, I don't know if you've seen her. I can't pronounce the name right. I think it's Sean Massey. Sean? Sean Massey. Yeah, I remember Sean her Massey. as a... Uh, she's a line Assistant referee, yeah. Yeah, she's a linesman, and she's very good. Yeah. She will argue with the players, and she makes a lot of good calls. Stick her in the middle. Absolutely. I think we, <laughs> I think we do need 
we, we've got female commentators now. We've got female reporters. We've got female analysts. I think we need more female referees and more female lines. Persons, lines, peoples, whatever, assistant referees, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I hope and I hope the boys on Saturday, both England and Andorra, show obviously I don't you don't need to be any different than you do with yes. normal refs, but just show them the respect they deserve. Exactly. Treat them how you would treat them another referee because like, if you're gonna the, if you're gonna have a go at respect. them, you have a go at them because you're gonna have a go at a male referee anyway. But and don't also, push it overboard. Absolutely. And also for people listening to our pod and following us on our Facebook page, stay tuned for Tuesday, the 12th of October. Because me and Dan are going to try and do a live watch along for the England versus Poland game from Wembley. Kickoff is uh, 7.45 Greenwich Mean Time. That's 19.45 p.m. We don't know if Pete will be joining us because Pete's very busy at the moment. And we hope to have him back with us ASAP. So, yeah, go to our Facebook page. Give it a like. Give it a follow. And keep your eyes open because we hopefully, fingers crossed, all being well, we will be going live. And you'll be able to chat to us while we're watching the England game and give us your points of view to debate. And also, if you do have any questions, then hit us up on the email and Twitter that Dan or on the Facebook page that Dan's already told you about. Yeah. And of course, again, a massive thank you to our partnership with the Proper Blokes Club. Again, if you're a man and you want to go for a walk, have some time with some great fellas, chat about if you want to chat about your issues, you can chat about your issues, catch up with the Proper Blokes Club www.thepropablokesclub.co.uk. You can catch them on Twitter and Facebook if you search Proper Blokes Club. Um, hopefully, they'll do a walk near you. And hopefully, we will have the man behind the Proper Blokes Club on the podcast in the near future. Um, so, Ryan, thank you very much for this evening. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you very soon. <laughs> <laughs>